0: Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about the opportunities and challenges of developing cooperative businesses. The Common Share is produced by Cooperatives First, a business development organization that increases awareness and understanding of the co op business model and supports cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For a background on co ops and a better way to do business, visit our website, cooperativesfirst.com. The site has great resources and business development tools for groups forming new ventures. I'm Asa Marshall, and I'm joined today by Kyle White, Education and Engagement Lead for Cooperatives First, and Paul Thompson, Research Officer at the University of Saskatchewan. Paul has created the Good Governance Matters online course for Cooperatives First, and today we're going to be discussing governance and why we need it. So I guess Paul, will start with you. What is governance anyway?
1: I think when most people think of governance, they immediately think of government. And those are actually two really different things. Now, if you get beyond that, people will often think of governance as corporate governance, and that's attached to really large corporations that span the globe. But governance is actually quite a bit simpler than that, and it permeates more parts of our lives than that. So the simplest definition we use for governance is who gets to decide what. And I also like to think of the origin of the word when I'm trying to think something through. In the case of governance, it comes from a Greek word that means to steer a ship. And when you think about different kinds of vessels, you could have everything from a kayak to a giant cargo ship. And depending on how big your ship is, you're going to have different techniques for steering it. But at the end, it needs to be steered in a successful way. No matter how big the group you have, you have to make that decision of who gets to decide what. And to me, that's really the essence of what governance is.
2: Do you think governance is just synonymous with
1: decision-making? Yeah, I've actually thought about that quite a bit. I think the added piece that you need, that's mostly correct, but the added piece you need is decision-making in groups. Mm -hmm. When you have more than one person, that's when there needs to be, um, you know, this thing we call governance. Mm
0: -hmm. And so maybe the answer to this question is a bit in in what you've already said, Paul, but why why do we need governance? Why is it important?
1: Yeah, well, we make a lot of, of decisions in groups, And we're here in the context of, you know, cooperative organizations today. And governance will mean a certain kind of thing in those types of organizations that we'll talk about. But governance is in any decision that we make that involves more than one person. So I don't think it's too crazy to say, and forgive me because I work in a university, so this is the way we think. But I don't think it's too crazy to say governance is about the human condition, right? Human beings are herd mammals, if you want to be an anthropologist about it. So we always are making decisions in in groups. And whether, you know, if you think about it, my uh, office mate and I like to think about how marriage is about governance, right? Mm -hmm. You have to decide who gets to decide what. And if you don't do a good job of governance in your marriage, it's probably not going to be really successful. It's the same thing in your co-op or any kind of organization, group of people that you have. You need to have maybe formal or informal ways of making decisions together.
0: And so speaking of co-ops then, is there anything that's particularly unique about co-op governance?
1: Kyle's probably the expert on this, but when I think of what's unique about co-op governance, again, using simple definitions, a co-op is a business that's run by the people who own it, and it's used for their benefit. So the fundamental unique thing about co-op governance to me, and you can kind of fill this in, Kyle, is the people who own the business are making decisions in hopefully a much more direct way about how the business is run for their benefit.
2: I would say it shifts the dynamic quite a bit, hey? When you talk about a cooperatively owned store, I mean, very rarely are customers involved in the decision-making process of that type of organization. Similarly with with worker co-ops, very, very rarely do you see workers uh, as key decision-makers, and key decision-makers in uh, the place of work they have. But um, in a co-op, it's definitely different. The characters are different, I guess.
1: When, when we look at case studies of co-op governance, one, another thing that comes up is not just at kind of the annual general meeting mm-hmm. decision-making level, but even all the way up to boards. Mm-hmm. This is different, and it's changing, I think, in the co-op world a little bit. But generally speaking, cooperative boards, uh, so boards of directors, mm-hmm are generally, we could say, less skilled than maybe you would find in, in an investor-owned business, right, where they might bring in, you know, accountants and lawyers and stuff. And so that has great benefits, but it also yeah. has, you know, it has the challenges too. So, but it's mm-hmm. different, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and I, I wonder how that dynamic changes, because this is, I think, a debate that's been had in the co-op sector, how cooperatives maintain that democratic value, That are built into their their organization. Um, And big co ops, I think, in particular, struggle with this. You know, your smaller farmers markets, things like that, those are fairly representative of their members. But when you talk about organizations like Federated Cooperatives Limited, Mountain Equipment Co op, the Wheat Pool or Atlantic Co op, they're good examples of how cooperatives are a bit more choosy, perhaps, with their boards. I think that changes maybe the, the way governance is thought about by your average member then in that case. Mm -hmm.
0: So how does governance change then if you've got, say, a worker cooperative then as opposed to a big consumer Mm -hmm. co-op? It sounds like those would be quite different structures of decision-making in those organizations.
2: I I think there's inherent differences, but there are still some similarities. Worker co-ops, at least the ones I've encountered, and there's not that many in Canada. Mm -hmm. It's certainly a more popular model in Europe. They're smaller organizations, usually, and largely I would say that the purpose for forming is to have a more democratic workplace um, and a more equitable governance over this business and, and treatment of the employees, I think, it would be inherent in that. But they often, I think, encounter some issues of centralization of power, which is kind of what I was getting at in the consumer co-op models. You probably would inevitably see people deferring to central figures, whether that's one or two people who are really managing it or who have been leading the charge from day one. Um, you see this happen in a couple of worker co-ops, and it does create significant issues. Not only does that then cause governance structures, but it can also lead to operational structures as members get disenfranchised
0: mm-hmm.
2: with their co-op when they lose their co-opiness, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think worker co-ops are um, impermanent to that that sort of issue, but they could maybe better safeguard against it, as can all organizations.
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess before we get too much farther into that, maybe we should define who the players actually are involved in governance and, and what the roles they play are when we're talking about decision-making in this capacity.
1: Yeah, I think here is another place where common understandings of governance overemphasize or, or certain aspects and miss other aspects of government uh, governance. Sorry. Mm. So when people think of who runs an organization, immediately they're often drawn to a CEO, Mm -hmm. right? But CEO is actually one of, we say, five different roles in the governance of an organization. And I would argue it's not even the most important one, even if it is the one that people are most familiar with. Mm -hmm. So if you want to think of it as a hierarchy, which is maybe dangerous and Mm -hmm. counterproductive, but I put the owners on the top right and this is unique in co-ops because the owners are are the people who use the the business as well in what we call an investor owned firm this would be most other types of businesses these would be investors right stockholders etc on the top underneath that you have the board of directors and this can have various names and various different kinds of organizations but it's typically a group of 7 to 15 sometimes less sometimes more people who kind of steer the ship on behalf of the owners. And they hire the next level, which is the CEO or the management, right? The CEO also can have different names. And their basic role is to oversee the operations. And under them, you have staff and then you have consumers. And the unique thing about a co-op, at least a a consumer co-op, not necessarily a worker co-op, is that that bottom, the consumers, is the same group. They overlap completely with the ownership. And that makes a really neat Mm -hmm. uh, model for how cooperative governance works.
2: So adding maybe another an extra layer in Mm -hmm. there, um, just to complicate things, cooperatives also have preferred shareholders, Mm -hmm. which I feel don't often get talked about when we talk about governance. Um, And that's because they don't necessarily have a big role in the governance of an organization. Preferred shareholders are those shareholders who invest in the organization, through the purchase of preferred shares, contributing to its equity, but they typically don't have voting rights. More often than not, they are the members, but they have a much greater stake in the cooperative, those individuals that do invest more. How do you think that impacts decision-making or perceived decision-making in a cooperative business?
1: Yeah, and again, I work at a university, right? Yeah. So we like we like to work in the abstract without right. all these kind of real-world problems. Yeah. But it, it, it is – I don't want to call it a problem, but it definitely makes decision-making – it adds a layer of complexity mm-hmm. to it. And the, the reason you start doing that is to raise capital, right? This mm-hmm. is often a problem for cooperatives because of the way – Uh, lenders will treat equity in co-ops, they often see it as debt. Mm -hmm. So co-ops can find it hard to expand their business, which is a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. So this is why you bring in things like preferred shares to raise capital, which is a good thing. But then there's a layer of complexity in in the governance in terms of the stakes are different for different people. Uh, And that can end up going very well in terms Mm -hmm. of raising the required capital. And it can also end up causing the business as a cooperative to fail. And we've seen case studies of that. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's completely dissimilar from what happened with the Saskatchewan wheat pool Mm -hmm. offering publicly traded shares, right? That created some tensions within the the business that ended up demutualized, as we say. It became not a cooperative business anymore.
0: Yeah. I guess a question for either of you. When you're looking at governance, what are some of the key ingredients that make for a good governance structure?
2: I think one of the biggest things you need at the forefront is really thoughtful people. The founding fathers and mothers of any organization need to be asking really good questions. So in a lot of our work of course we're working with people on the ground who are developing cooperatives and figuring out a governance structure is central to that. Figuring out who makes decisions and how do they relate to one another and the business. So really spending the time on those sorts of questions and even working through different scenarios is really important to getting good parameters around what decision-making looks like in that organization and what the processes look like if decisions are made well or if they're poorly made. Some might call that bylaws or policies, Um, one of my favorite things. So spending time writing those things out, being thoughtful, thinking through scenarios, and putting in provisions that I guess, provide the contract for the marriage that is governance? Mm
1: -hmm. I think it's challenging, right? Good governance is not just a checklist. Some people Mm want to think of it that way. You know, I have to do this, and I did that, and I have Mm -hmm. to do this, and I did that. Okay, and now we have good governance. But it's much messier than that. I'll give you two things that I think I've come across in the work that I've done that organizations that are governed well do. Uh, The first one is conflict, and we can think of this in the context of the boardroom. Governance is about a lot more than just the boardroom. But a lot of the decision-making that happens in governance comes from that place, whether it's a very fancy, very elegant boardroom or somebody's kitchen table. And conflict is important, but it has to be the right kind of conflict. So it's a bit of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you could have an organization where somebody comes up with an idea and everybody else just nods and says, yep, that's good, and they do it without kind of critical reflection. You said thoughtful people, right? That's part of the conflict. Uh, but on the other end of that, you can have conflict that it is not productive, and that's kind of animosity. Mm-hmm. What you really want is people who are bringing up di- ideas and looking at them from different perspectives and having a spirited uh, and productive debate about whether or not that's gonna be a good decision for the organization. So the, the first thing is productive conflict. Um, the second thing is uh, you use the word uh, process, and I think it's really important to see governance as a process. It's not a checklist, it's not a destination that you get to where you say one day you wake up and you say, oh, okay, I'm in, a, in an organization that's governed well. It's about continuing that process of, you know, productive Mm -hmm. conflict and and all those other things so that you're constantly reevaluating what your organization needs. What are the needs of your members? How is that being met? And that's always changing. So you have to view it as a process that needs constant engagement Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. thoughtfulness and productive conflict and all of these things.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, just to build on that, I guess, a little bit. Um, All too often, I think, organizations, boards, steering committees, they spend a lot of time thinking about governance. They tick the box, they've got it right, they put it on the shelf, we're good to go, and then the problems emerge. And then they need to revisit and say, well, what have we done, or what provisions do we have to help us deal with these issues? So as you said, keeping governance relevant and keep, keep discussing governance yeah. is hugely critical at the board table and beyond.
1: I, I think there's a tendency to to see governance success in an organization mm-hmm. and feel like you can pick that up, move it over, and drop it mm-hmm. into your organization. And mm-hmm. what people have found is that mm-hmm. there's no one-size-fits-all for governance. You have to mm-hmm. look really critically at the context of your organization and in co-ops, your membership, mm-hmm. and what what are the unique things about your circumstances and address those rather than just you know, copying whatever everyone else is doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, Kyle, you mentioned that the problems tend to emerge. Can you dig a little bit more into that and give some examples of what kind of problems do emerge in the in the process of trying to get governance right?
2: You know, one of the big things we find is articulating roles is one of those things that people need to be doing to get things right. And, and we mentioned this a bit before, the issues of centralizing power in an organization um, to just a few people can inevitably lead to bad things in co-ops. So having discussions about that. And then another important part is educating people about what their roles are in an organization. Um, All too often we talk to cooperatives or members of cooperatives who don't really know what their rights are as a member, don't know what their roles are as a member. I mean, you go to any AGM of a a big co-op, Um, The one here in Saskatoon has, I think, 120,000 members. The last AGM that I attended, there was maybe 250. So I think 00004 percent of the membership. And that's not to say it's a bad thing. Oftentimes, if things are going well, people don't need to participate because they don't need to complain. But in some of the conversations we've been having with co-ops, the Mountain Co-Lab Cooperative, for example... Uh, They want to figure out how they can get members more engaged. It's a fairly small cooperative, 150 people. And people use the cooperative for its service, and that's why it's there. But cooperatives do need that additional layer of member engagement um, to not only use its services and keep it economically viable, but they also need those people then to step up, uh, engage in the governance of the organization, to ensure that it's fulfilling its obligations legally and to its members, somebody needs to be making those decisions. So, we've talked about different ways of educating members, whether that's in information package that you get um, when you join the mem- join as a member, if it's ongoing seminars or discussions or access to literature and videos or regular visits from your friendly Cooperative's first neighbor. And it could be any of these things, right? Reminding people to talk about what it means to be a member of a cooperative and how they can contribute to the organization. Because at the end of the day, participating in a co-op should only lead to more benefit for yourself.
1: I think that's a really important point. Mm -hmm. And this touches on something I think that's really important to talk about with co-ops and co-op governance. And that's that, and this isn't a political podcast, but Mm -hmm. the political climate uh, in the world right now is very different from... It was even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think what's fueling that, if you want to put it simply, is a disillusionment with institutions.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. People are starting to realize that institutions, whether that be a government or a corporation, don't always act in their interests, even when they say they do. This is really positive. This is a really cool thing for the cooperative movement because co-ops allow you a level of control, right? They allow you to, from the ground up, build and control that institution, that organization, so it is working in a way that you feel benefits you. I think now is a really exciting time for co-ops because of -hmm. the way that they're governed.
2: Just almost a side note here, but as you were talking about that, and I was thinking about questioning institutions, the three of us are millennials-ish. I don't want anyone to date themselves. I certainly am a millennial. And there's shifts in the political world, Millennial voting patterns are lower than most other demographics. Our involvement as volunteers are drastically different than those that came before us. Eventually, our generation is going to need to take up the helm and run a lot of these organizations, or they're going to have really serious challenges. Do you think governance is going to face a youth crisis as people don't get involved um, in traditional ways of governance, or is governance going to have to adapt to changing generational patterns.
1: (laughs) To answer your question, I think there has to be... So the work that you do is talking to people about their roles, right? And you had this really great, and and I can't remember it right off the top of my head, this great definition of a co-op as people saying, hey, don't worry, government, don't worry, Mm -hmm. big big business, we got this. Mm -hmm. And this is a real great niche for millennials, I consider myself one, (laughs) to... Do their own thing, right? Yep. If you don't trust um, the institutions of, of government or some of them, if you don't trust the institutions of big business, do it yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what co-ops are there for. So what I see is a round hole and a round peg. And I think the missing ingredient is just communicating to people that, mm-hmm. hey, look, there's this need and there's this group of people who can fill that need. Let's put these together. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, you know, things like this podcast help, help do that. For sure.
2: And I think that actually does speak quite a bit to the role of that cooperatives first and the Center for the Study of Co ops and all co op organizations hope to play is advocating for that role. Certainly, organizations like um, Futurepreneur exist to promote certain business creation among uh, young people. So, okay, there's hope after all. <laughs>
0: Um, so maybe we'll just go back to that idea, too. We were talking about some of the issues in governance. Kyle, and I'll maybe let Paul uh, address that, too. What are some of the ways that that governance can go wrong or to go badly?
2: I could draw on some personal experiences sitting on boards and participating in governance. And there's tons of other examples of when governance goes wrong. At a fundamental level, when the owners of the organization or the members of the cooperative aren't acting Like that, or there's some disillusion around their role, you've got a huge problem on your hands. Um, If you look, for example, at the Good Food Junction as a good example, it was a retail cooperative here in Saskatoon servicing the core neighborhood that had, you know, social economic issues, very low incomes, um, and it wanted to provide access to food uh, where no food was really being provided. Fantastic idea. It didn't do a great job of engaging the community in the creation of the organization. And throughout its lifespan was plagued with issues of engaging that community um, in the ownership of the organization and in the economic participation in the organization. And over time, you're setting yourself up for a major catastrophe um, if that goes on. So little perceptions, things like people thinking that they couldn't support the cooperative if they weren't a member. Um, not fully understanding what it was to be a member, not understanding their role or their control of the organization. All of these build up over time. And if you have these issues right from the get-go, you're not going to be around for a very long time. And unfortunately, Good Food Junction closed. So speaking back to that issue of getting people involved and helping them understand what it means to be a member in a cooperative and an owner of a business, essentially, needs to happen. Otherwise, you're going to have something go
1: wrong very quickly. Yeah, I'll throw one more thing out. I think we've touched on things like, you know, having conflict that's mm-hmm. too um too heated or or not enough conflict. Things like, you know, member engagement. Another thing that's perhaps unique to co-ops is and I would go further and say maybe even unique to larger co-ops is success can be a problem in that when you're a large co-op competing against other large businesses, it can be tempting to see cooperation as an anchor mm-hmm. instead of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen case studies of where large co-ops have seen cooperation as the problem, mm-hmm. and that can lead to governance failure um, because it it gets to the root of um, not doing what a cooperative is for. And when you lose sight of what that co-op is for, you know, we've we've seen this in a number of different organizations where things can start to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Can you give us one of those examples? (laughs) Um, Seeing cooperation uh, uh, as the problem, um, you had a very competitive grocery business in Atlantic Canada. And in order to be competitive, uh, Co-op Atlantic, which was a second-tier co-op that uh, provided services to grocery, mostly grocery and fuel, uh, co-ops, some uh, agricultural products, mm-hmm. I think, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically tried to compete in the same way that investor-owned grocery chains like Sobeys and Loblaws mm-hmm. were competing, and that actually ended up alienating membership and led to uh, that very large cooperative. I think it was the second-largest yep. cooperative of its kind in Canada failing a, you know, very quickly.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm going to draw maybe attention to one more
2: area or governance can go wrong, but not always. Um, And this comes just after the FCL annual meeting. I know there's been a debate among retail cooperatives and second-tier cooperatives around the two-hat problem. And and Brett Fairburn and Murray Fulton wrote a great piece on the two-hat problem. Um, So just to touch on it, um, it's the issue that arises when an individual serves a role in the board, usually, of one organization as well as... Uh, the organization that supports that first business. So in second-tier co-ops, that may be serving on the board of a local cooperative association as well as the wholesaler that supports it. There's arguably an inherent conflict of interest from that person being a representative. Um, And cooperatives sometimes try to safeguard against that, um, preventing an individual who serves on a board of one organization being on the board of their organization It's interesting to see that debate play out, and I don't think there's any one right answer. But it's something I think organizations should keep in the back of their mind, how conflicts of interest um, or governance issues might creep up. Um, And there's lots of stuff out there um, to learn from other organizations, such as Co-op Atlantic, to safeguard against some of those issues.
0: And can either of you go into those safeguards a little bit more? Kyle, I have a feeling you're going to say something about bylaws, possibly, but (laughs) um, is there any other ways that any organization, or co-op specifically, can kind of guard against some of those governance issues coming up?
2: Bylaws are definitely a part of that, but they're only a very small part, I think. You can put systems in place and processes in place and define roles as much as you want. Um, At the end of the day, you still need to rely on the individuals who are involved in the governance processes to follow those guidelines, and still do a good job. Um, so I think even more important than bylaws is to provide some form of governance training, especially people in leadership positions, whether that is you know, our online governance course, check it out, Good Governance Matters, or some other form of governance training, or even just reading about board leadership, equipping people with the knowledge, the tools, And the basic understanding of what it means to be involved in the governance of an organization is hugely important. Just putting up those safeguards against some issues that might creep up.
0: So, Paul, this is probably a good time to give you a minute to pitch the Good Governance Matters course. Can you talk about exactly what it is, having been the the creator of that resource?
1: Yeah, so this is a course that's, uh, we call it a MOOC, a Massive Open Online Course. So it's available to anyone Uh, It's available through the Canvas network. So if you go to canvas.net, you can sign up for a free account there and just search for governance in cooperatives, and you'll find the course. So what it is, um, the version that exists now is a self-paced course about cooperative governance. There's two parts to it. The first talks about uh, what is a co-op, what what is different about governance in co-ops, uh, what are the parts of governance? A lot of the things that we've been discussing today, you know, the typical challenges challenges that come up in cooperative governance. And the second part of the course is a three-part model uh, that's been developed by researchers at the Center for the Study of Cooperatives about the basically the three big pieces you need to do cooperative governance well. And those are making good decisions about the future, uh, having legitimacy and managing uh, what we call strategic interdependencies, basically human relationships where people's decisions affect other people's outcomes. So this course is presented in very accessible language. It's designed so that people with all kinds of different levels of formal education, people with all kinds of different uh, levels of familiarity with co-ops can access it. And get something out of it. So we've got really positive feedback about uh, running it so far. And, you know, we hope to do more with it in the future, certainly.
0: Great. And Kyle, do you maybe want to talk a bit about what Cooperatives First can do on a more uh, one-on-one basis to help organizations that need some more maybe information or training with their governance?
2: So for sure, um, Cooperatives First provides services to groups that are starting cooperatives all along the business development path including some services in the create stage, as we call it, as they set up that governance structure and think through some of those early processes. Um, But we can also provide director training and focus on your basic obligations as a director, um, what you need to comply with as set out in the CO-OPS Act, and some basic practices for member engagement and um, good rules of order, things like that.
0: So I think that's probably a good place to end it. Thank you for tuning in to The Common Share. And please look us up next time where we're going to talk about getting people involved in board leadership.